Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is the best-selling author of over 40 books, including his Inspector Rebus novels, which have been translated into 22 languages, the Malcolm Fox novels and several standalone thrillers. He's the recipient of four CWA Dagger Awards, America's prestigious Edgar Award, and last year won the British Book Award for Best Crime and Thriller Book. He has several honorary degrees from British universities. He's received a knighthood for his contributions to literature in the UK. He's currently on the bestseller list with his last book and he's just launched a brand new project. He is my old friend Ian Rankin. Welcome back. Hello. It's really, really lovely to be here. And of course, you are now Sir Ian Rankin. Yeah, a few months ago, I came down to London to be knighted by Princess Anne which was lovely because don't tell the others, but she's my favourite royal. (laughs) Don't tell anybody that. Is it like a sort of whole secret squirrel process? You're not allowed to tell anyone for months, are you? Yeah, and you're not allowed to turn it down, right? So you get a letter saying, look, if you were offered something, would you accept it? And it's only if you say, yes, I would, that you then find out that you have been put forward for something. And yeah, it was a complete surprise. I got the OBE quite a few years ago and I thought, looking at most of the writers I know, that's probably as far up the ladder as you're going to climb in. But the knighthood was brilliant because suddenly it puts me up there with um, Conan Doyle, the other Edinburgh crime writer. (laughs) So um, I'm I'm snapping at his heels. I think that's absolutely wonderful. Well, you took some time out to kind of relax from all of that. And of course, a punishing book tour with your last novel, which has just done so incredibly well. But you had a rather unfortunate experience on your way to a holiday of a lifetime in Greece. Oh, wow. I mean, is that a horrible experience? We decided to go posh and pay for business class flights. And when we got to the airport, we couldn't check in. We tried checking on online, though. It wasn't working. We phoned up BA, not, nothing. Got to the airport at Edinburgh. They said, oh, we'll check in when you get to London. Got to London and they said, no, we've, we're full up. So you're back where you belong, Rankin. <laughs> you're back in steerage. So, yeah, ignominy. We had to pay for our own meal. That's outrageous. I hope oh, you could play. It's not the worst thing that could happen. At least we got to Greece. And when we got there, Greece was not on fire. So things could have been a lot worse. Now, you actually went to go and see Oedipus Rex. Yeah, Epidavros. Extraordinary. Our friends who have gone to Epidavros several times were trying to get us to go there, and this year it worked. And it's an amphitheatre, a natural amphitheatre, where they would have put on plays in ancient times. And they still do. And it takes about 20,000 people. The acoustics, of course, are impeccable. And you don't know what play you're going to get because they put on a series of plays and they each run for just a few days. So it was extraordinary that Oedipus Rex would only been running for three or four days. And that was the one we got to see. It's got subtitles. There are big screens up, so you get it in English as well as in ancient Greek and modern Greek. And it was brilliant. It was riveting. The seats were comfy. You get a wee cushion to sit on. The acoustics were fantastic. The sight lines were fantastic. It was nice and short, which I find a blessing at my age. And yeah... The masks, the the chorus, it was just, the, everything about it was extraordinary. There was some music. It's a powerful story. And of course, as, as we know, because we are intelligent people, Georgina, it's possibly the first who done it. Well, exactly. And, that's and it's what also I'm, one of the cleverest who yeah, done it. I wanted to ask you about that and, and seeing the kind of, I suppose, the way that that kind of work has weaved through the centuries. I yeah, mean, I from just, that to Rebus. In some ways, it's a story that's still being told because it's almost an unreliable narrator. You've got someone who's playing detective, the king, trying to find a murderer, but really, spoiler alert, he's trying to find himself. He is the murderer. And it's been done. It's been reimagined in many ways by many different writers down the centuries, but it still packs a punch. Mm. The original still packs a punch. You know, this guy has ended up, without knowing it, marrying his mother, 
he's the the kind of brother to his kids as well as the you know whatever. I mean, all of that going on. I mean, Chinatown is the one that made me think. Oh yeah, because that's kind of this you know story of Chinatown is a story of someone who is the, both the mother and the sister mm. of somebody in in the story. So I just thought, yeah, we're, crime writers are still using this as a template for great fiction. Have any of your works made it to the stage? I've written for the stage. I've written original material for the stage. So there's been I've written three full-length stage plays, two of which have featured Rebus. One was on earlier this year in Hornchurch in Essex, a game called Malice. And basically it's it's my homage to an inspector calls. So there's a dinner party in Edinburgh, six people around the dinner table. The hostess has devised a little whodunit for them to keep them entertained after the meal. Rebus, the detective, is one of the guests. She didn't know a detective was coming because he's a plus one of a lawyer. And so they're in the first act, they're trying to solve this traditional classic English whodunit. There's a kind of lord of the manor has been bludgeoned to death in his stately home. Is it the butler? Is it the gardener? Is it the vicar? But then towards the end of the first act, somebody comes downstairs and says, oh, there's a body in the toilet. Cut. Second half opens and Rebus is trying to find out who killed the person in the real world before the police arrive. I've got to see it. You've got will, to see it. Will it. Hopefully it's touring next year. We've retooled it. When I saw it in Hornchurch, I thought, no, there's a few things I would like to do with this just to expand it a little bit and to make it less confusing. So I, I took the script back and I've polished it and lengthened it slightly. And we're hoping... John Mickey, the actor, Scottish actor, was fantastic playing Rebus in the original production. We're really hoping he'll do it again sometime next year and we'll take it on tour. Mm-hmm. Of course, many of your Rebus books have been filmed, though. In fact, you came across the filming of, of one of them in Edinburgh quite by chance. Yeah, they were filming it just recently. They only just wrapped it fairly recently. It's a Scandinavian streaming service who got the rights and got a terrific screenwriter called Gregory Burke to, to work on it. And we bounced ideas around. I've known Greg for a long time. And he came up with this six part, six hours, one story told over six hours, which is terrific. So the characters can develop and breathe in a way that wasn't possible previously with Rebus on screen. And then, yeah, they started filming it. And I didn't know. Nobody said, oh, by the way, we've started filming in Edinburgh. And I was walking to the Oxford Bar one day, which is a pub I drink in. It happens to be the pub Rebus drinks in. Walking along George Street in Edinburgh on my way to the pub. And there was all these lorries and pantechnicans and vans and things. And I thought, what's going on? And somebody said, oh, we're filming. I went, oh, what are you filming? He said, it's called Rebus. I went, oh, right. <laughs> and continued on my merry way inside the Oxford Bar. And they were doing some shots just outside the Oxford Bar. So eventually a director came in and said hello. And then Richard Rankin, the actor, no relation, no nepotism here. Uh-huh. Richard Rankin, who's playing Rebus, came in and said hello. It was the first time we'd met. I wonder about the coincidence here. I mean, first, the fact that you come across it. Second, the actor's called Rankin. I know, I know. He was an outlander if anybody knows Outlander. And so he's young and vigorous. So what we've got on screen is going to be a young, vigorous Rebus, as in the early books, but transposed to the present day. Right. So it'll be a bit of a tug for, you know, regular readers of my work. They'll have to kind of readjust to that, that they've got the young, macho Rebus who can run down a street and chase a suspect in a way that my Rebus now can't, Mm. but set in the present day. Yeah, but I mean, it's. I think I've only seen the first two episodes so far. It's still being edited, but the two episodes I've seen are just fantastic. It's quite full on, I've got to say. It's definitely post-Watershed. Oh, sex. Oh, we get to see quite a lot of nudity, but violence as well. Mm. Quite graphic mm. violence. Just back to coincidence. So you've got all that going on. I understand you also know a man called 
Joe Rebus, and he lives on Rankin Drive. Yeah, I mean, it's weird, isn't it? It's like I'm living in an alternative universe or a version of the Matrix or something. Yeah, I mean, years and years ago, I'd lived away from Edinburgh for years and I moved back. So around about 1996, and I got to know this bookseller. And he said, oh, I drink in the pub called Swanee's. You should come in some night. So I wandered into Swanee's. And this bookseller said, I'll introduce you to a few of the regulars. And he said, this is Joe, Joe Rebus. Rebus, he pronounced it. Polish name. And Joe said, oh, you're the guy that writes the books. I went, yeah. He said, oh, I live on Rankin Drive. I went, you're joking, aren't you? And he, he actually had to get the phone directory from behind the bar. And I went down and there was Rebus, Rebus, Joe, J. Address was Rankin Drive. I just thought, it's bizarre. There's three streets in Edinburgh, not named after me, obviously, but three streets with the name Rankin in them. And a guy called Rebus happens to live on one of them. But, I mean, if you wrote this in fiction, you people wouldn't believe it. it. Yeah. But you, we know that the real world is much more fantastical than anything. One of the things I've got to do in my books is to tone it down. You know, there are things that happen to real detectives, real cops in the real world, that if I put them in my fiction, people would say that couldn't happen. It's mm. exaggerated, but it's not. It's actually what happens. We live in a kind of strange time, though, when things that we don't think could possibly happen seem to be happening all the time. Look at the politics around mm. us. Mm. Um, we think this is insane. We, we, this is nuts. It's as if we are, indeed, as they would say in the, the thick of it, through the looking glass. Yeah. I mean, the last time we spoke, you had just come out with your latest book and you said, right, I'm taking a year off. You didn't, did you? I, I mostly <laughs> did. I mostly did. I mean, this project for Amazon was was meant to be written last year, but I never quite got round to it. So I owed them a novella, which I duly wrote January, February this year. Then I did a little bit of tweaking to the play, the, the stage play, but that was written last year. So the only things I've done, that's the only writing I've done this year. And it was just, it was a matter of weeks rather than the usual months. And the rest of the time, I've been travelling. We've been to St. Lucia, my wife and I, we've been to, oh, where have we been? South of France, we've been to Italy, we've been to Greece a couple of times. We were planning to go to Japan, but we didn't make it. Japan was full. <laughs> and then we were planning to go, in a couple of weeks, we were going to go to USA and Canada to watch the leaves changing. But things have gotten away and so that's not going to happen either so i've got one more trip which is a little trip to france to see an old friend and then after that that'll be the end of my sabbatical year and i've got to go back to work again i've got a new rebus to deliver at some point that's very exciting let's talk about this amazon originals project though so i mean this is different for you because not coming out in print at all i know that was one of the challenges was getting my head around the fact that i'm now entering this new age this new world of e-books and audiobooks. It's a specific project. What Amazon are trying to do is, is something that can be read in one sitting or listened to in one sitting. So perfect for commuters. The length of a podcast, you know. If you're happy listening to a 30-minute podcast, you can read this story. So I knew it had to be a certain length. It couldn't be any more than, I don't know, 10,000 words or something. It couldn't have too many convolutions and characters in it. It couldn't be too complex if you want it to just be read and read quickly. And I thought I had a perfect idea because for a long time I'd wanted to write about this other London, this London that the oligarchs and the dark money inhabits, these new high-rise blocks of apartments that nobody seems to live in that are dark at night. The only person in them is the concierge or the night security guy. And they're just there to protect people's dodgy money, or not even dodgy money, but just protect their money, mm. or just an investment. And I just thought it's another world. And I'd read a lot of non-fiction about that London, about the London that is full of kind of money and full of nobody knows where the money actually came from and who owns these things, who owns these properties. And for a long time, it was very easy for people to hide their money by buying property. 
And I just thought that's a really interesting thing. And I couldn't imagine a way to do it in Edinburgh with Rebus. So it sat in the back burner until Amazon said, well, we're looking for something that would fill this this slot. And I said, well, what about if it's a high-tech pitch, a, a high-tech thriller set in London? It went great. So it was, for me, comparatively easy to write because you're not committing the time you need to do a novel. And I think it's very fast-moving and very filmic, and I think the length worked well for it. It gives me a chance to introduce the characters, to paint them in quite lightly, but give them some three-dimensionality. The plot runs along at a fair old pace, but at the same time, I think there is room for the theme to develop, mm. the theme of this kind of, this other London that most people who live in London don't ever see. And so when the, the difference between writing that and writing a full-blown novel, I mean, are you just putting more into the novel I, I, or are you having to massively row back on, on the short stories? It, it's compression. It's compression. So, you know, if you're going to introduce a character, you've got to just with a few broad brushstrokes, you've got to give us three-dimensional sense of that character. So, for example, there's one character who's a cop and she's only in a couple of short scenes, but she plays quite an important role. And having left a meeting, one of the other cops says, why is she always chewing gum? And the other cop Gish says, well, if she doesn't, she's on 40 a day. And that tells you something about that character. I think just that line tells you about the character. Mm. So you get a sense of what she's like. And that, that might be the only bit of character building you get, but at least you're getting something. Mm. And I became very interested in Gish, who's the main detective in it, I guess. There's two detectives. One is, it's almost like Seven. You know the film Seven? You've got a cop who's on his last week before he leaves the force, and you've got the young, gung-ho cop. There's a bit of that about it. We've got two detectives. One is Milton, and he's quite near the end of his career. And then you've got uh, Gillian Gish, who's much younger, and she's, although she's his junior in terms of rank, she's got a lot of skills that he doesn't have, and she's got something to prove. And so it really becomes her investigation. And you go into a lot of issues that we're facing at the moment. So, for instance, people just getting away with crime and police, not necessarily because they're bent, although obviously that comes into it too, but how they just are not getting to grips with it and sometimes not even investigating. Well, a lot of people are seen, or until recently were seen, as being untouchable. If you were an oligarch or you were a member of the Saudi royal family, you could merrily drive at speed through the city of London, picking up as many speeding tickets as you like, and you would, using diplomatic plates or whatever, you would never never have to pay the fines. People seem to be running around London as though they owned the place, and in fact, they did own the place. The government have tried to crack down on that to a certain extent. I think the Metropolitan Police, you know, are trying to tidy up their image, rehabilitate themselves in the public eye, so maybe they'll be less willing to turn a blind eye to that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, you've got tech billionaires hiding their stuff away. You've got Saudi princesses on shopping sprees hiding themselves away. These buildings, these high rises where, you know, you've minimum spend would be 10 million, I would guess, for an apartment. And this is sort of like one Hyde Park or yeah, something. Kind yeah, kind of that area. You know, they all, want, they all want to be in the shishi parts of London and don't want to be in the periphery. And these people are locking themselves in these little high secure cells almost. They don't want people to know they're there. They don't want people to know that they own the place. They've got bodyguards, their cars are kept in underground car parks and almost never used, their food is brought in from the five-star hotel next door, etc., etc. And they're almost living these hermetically sealed lives. And at the same time, you've got all the people who are running around doing the work for them. You've got the cleaners and you've got the security guards and everything else who are, of course, living in much less salubrious conditions in parts of London where they can just about afford to live. So you've got these two Londons colliding, mm. as has always happened. 
you know, I mean, it's upstairs, downstairs, isn't it? Mm. You know, upstairs, downstairs, there was, you know, all the posh people upstairs and all the poor people downstairs running around washing their dishes and cooking their meals and looking after their kids. And in some ways it hasn't changed. That situation is still with us. And I just thought it was a really interesting theme, mm. I guess, for the book. And I'd read a lot of books about money laundering and how Britain can be a haven for dirty money, or et cetera, et cetera. And I just thought, this this is a kind of theme I want to explore mm. in this story, but looking at the two Londons, looking at the... The underworld and the overworld, as it were. Yeah. And I mean, also, you go into the whole sort of foreign office thing where these untouchable people, actually, our own government is protecting them, saying, look, you'll, you'll start a diplomatic incident. Yeah, and I, I mean, if you've, if, you've, if you've got a sort of Arabian princess and you think she's done something wrong, you're going to have the foreign office on the phone as a cop uh, to your chief, saying things like, you know, you've got, look, you've got to tread carefully here because we're doing trade deals with these people. Post-Brexit, we need to do trade deals with these people. And the same goes for your Chinese industrialists or your, until recently, your Russian oligarchs. We felt we needed to pander to them because they were the ones bringing money into the country. And we had to make the UK a welcoming country for money. And as is being pointed out now by journalists doing a deep dive into all this, that has not necessarily been a positive. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I think we've turned a blind eye. I think the... The government and to some extent, the I guess, the forces of law and order have turned a blind eye to a lot of stuff going on, partly because they've not got the resources, partly because a lot of the stuff that goes on is is way beyond what you can imagine. You know, you can, if, if it's if it's done, stuff done on the dark web, money being transferred, using the Cayman Islands or the British Virgin Islands, you don't know who owns these properties, you don't know where this money's going or where it came from. You're kind of stuffed. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. And I think the book just highlights all of these issues and brings them together, as you say, in a, in a story that just clicks along. It just takes you with it and, and you read it pretty fast. So is that, for you, going into bed, if you like, with Amazon, a difficulty? I know that you've spoken out a lot in the past about how, for instance, musicians are not getting the money that they're owed because of streaming services and also, of course, how independent booksellers are, are, are facing because there are big retailers like like Amazon. How did you square that with yourself? Um, well, it's I mean it's 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 business and it's a contemporary world. And there are a lot of people who do nothing but listen to audiobooks, and a lot of people who don't read physical books. They only read their books on their phone or their or their Kindle or whatever. And I want to reach out to people who might not have picked up an Ian Rankin book in the past because they're not that. They don't want to invest in a series that's already got 24 books in it. Yeah. So they're not going to read book 24 thinking they might have to read books 1 to 23 to make sense of book 24. Here's a little standalone introduction to Ian Rank and you get a taste for Ian Rank and you think, oh, OK, maybe I'll try another one. And so what I'm hoping is this is a gateway drug <laughs> to the whole Ian Rankin universe. And very different for you. I mean, is there a different mindset when you think, I'm never going to see these words on a page? Oh, no, no. I mean, the deal is that after a few years, we can print it. Oh. So, yeah. I mean, the, the exclusivity is just, for, I think, for a few years. But it's such a short... I mean, I don't know. Are publishers interested in publishing at that length? A physical book, a novella? I don't know. I mean, I always thought that short stories should be the form of now because they're, they take the length of a commute to read. Mm. But it doesn't seem to have happened. People seem to have gone for podcasts and things instead. Or even TikTok, because podcasts are too long. Mm. I mean, we've got a whole world now, Georgina, that I don't understand of books that are basically on the bestseller lists because of TikTok. 
And they're writers I might never have heard of. They're books I've never heard of. But suddenly there they are at number one in the bestseller list because there's a whole new community of readers out there who I would love to tap into mm. who are reading the kinds of books that I didn't even know existed. And do you think that that then becomes a genre question? What is this genre? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, I, I do wonder what's going to happen with AI. Are we going to get generated, self-generated books? I mean, a friend of mine who runs a book group in Edinburgh, my wife goes to the book group. She said to my wife, she said, oh, look, I've I got, a, I got chat GPT to, to do an Ian Rankin story. Take it home and show Ian. And so she brought this piece of writing home, which was terrible. I mean, on the surface, it looked okay. But when you thought about it for two seconds, you thought there's no dialogue. The plot doesn't go anywhere, such as there's a plot. This is obviously written by something that's never been to Edinburgh. <laughs> the language was very basic and it just didn't have, it didn't have any humanity to it. It didn't have any humanity to it. But give, give AI six months or a year and these things might be indistinguishable. Mm. from what we think of as the real thing. But, I mean, I suppose that's also because it's not scraping the the right data that's in your head. It hasn't read all of Muriel Spark. It hasn't read Conan Doyle. Yeah, potentially, and it will eventually do all that. Mm. I just hope there's other writers out there first that it'll nick ideas from before it starts <laughs> nicking mine. <laughs> in terms of classification of, of fiction and everything, so within crime, what you do, I suppose, mostly is is police procedural. Yes, I mean, I mean, uh, yes, yeah, certainly would be described as police procedurals, and I think police procedurals are in a difficult place just now. Partly because the public no longer think of the police necessarily as the good guys, on the back of Black Lives Matter and all everything, everything we've seen that's wrong with the Metropolitan Police, the kind of cover ups, the covering up for uh, cops who've done terrible things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So readers are going, well, why, why would I invest myself in a character who I think might not be my friend, might not be on my side, mm. or might not be working to my best interests? And I think that has propelled the rise of the non-police novel. So the big sellers in the charts now tend to be domestic noir, psychological thrillers, or what we used to call the cosies. So the kind of, you know, it's amateurs, well-meaning amateurs solving crimes, mm. no cops. So I think the police novel, if we're going to continue to write them, has to reinvent itself, has to take all that on board. And Michael Connolly, I've noticed, doing it in the States now, his last couple of books have, have flagged up that policing in the States is much more difficult than it was because of what happened that, that started up the um, Black Lives Matter debate and everything else. And it's, yeah, it's happening with people who do write about cops here as well. We're having to say, well, look, you know, we know there are bad cops and, and in some cases institutional corruption in these organisations and hopefully it will get weeded out because we do need police. Uh, we do need policing. And a lot of my books in the past have been about that. They've been about what kind of policing do we require? What kind of policing do we deserve? What kind of policing do we get? I mean, the last Rebus novel, was Heartful of Headstones, was about a corrupt police station and a cop who was bad. He was a, a spousal abuser and he, he's going to sell out all his mates to get a lesser sentence and comes a cropper as a result of that. And I mean, that's flagging up stuff that's been happening in Police Scotland and, and down in London and elsewhere in the UK. So, I mean, I've, I've never thought these are angels, that cops are angelic mm. figures. Mm. They're human, they're fallible, and sometimes they're bad. How will that influence, then, the way you, you, you tackle your next Rebus novel? Can't give much away, really, can I? <laughs> the next Rebus novel is going to be very different. That's pretty much all I can say is it's going to be very different if I get my way from the books that have gone before it for reasons that will become obvious to people who have read the ending of the previous book. Yes. 
You say Let's if, leave it at that. if you get your way, who is it that's opposing you? I know that Miranda, your wife, has a lot of influence on your. Well, work. no, it's not Miranda really. It's uh, my agent. My agent's worried. Uh, he, he, yeah, he's worried the next book might be the last book. So he would like to postpone the inevitable. So he was saying, why don't you go back in time and write an early Rebus? Let's have Rebus in his 40s (laughs) when he was macho. Set the book in the 80s. Um, I'm going, yeah, I don't think so. Rebus as a baby. Rebus Rebus as boyhood. Rebus at high school. (laughs) Rebus at high school, yeah. There's a whole load that you could be doing. I think that's uh, that's for whoever comes after me, if we're going to keep the franchise going. Oh, really? Would you do that in the way that's... No, when I'm dead. But really? Yeah, I'll have no say in it. Once I'm dead... Anybody can write anything, can't they? I mean, you know, there's new books getting written all the time about cops. I mean, like um, Denise Miner's just done a, a Chandler, Raymond Chandler book. She's done a book about Philip Marlowe, which and it's great. She's done a really good job of it. So good, detect- good fictional detectives never die. Only their creators die. Well, I hope it's not for some time yet. Touch wood. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on to talk to me again. We didn't talk about music. We always do. <laughs> after after the recording. Yeah. Is there a particular song that was kind of going through your head when you were writing this latest Amazon original? <gasps> oh, jeez. Well, it would, have to be, it would have to be about London, wouldn't it? Maybe London Calling by the Clash would be a pretty good one. Yeah, that would be good. Just before we go, this book's called The Rise. Why? Well, it's a nod to High Rise by J.G. Ballard, obviously. Um, you sussed that out straight away. It was, going to be, it was going to be called The Citadel, but then Amazon came along with a TV show called Citadel, and we just thought, ooh, that could be slightly confusing to people. And so we, had, we did some brainstorming, and we came up with the... And I liked The Rise because of, because of the nod to J.G. Ballard, this sort of dystopian idea of what living in a block of flats could be, an apartment building could be. Citadel, also a pretty good title, but... I just didn't want to get confused with a TV show. So that's The Rise. It's an Amazon original. You can get it from Amazon. You can hear the audiobook. And I should also remind you that A Heart Full of Headstones still in all of the bestseller lists. It's the 24th Rebus novel. And the 25th, I'm assured, will be coming up soon. The Rise, a short story. Ian Rankin is published by Amazon Original Stories. And it comes out on the 1st of November. You've been listening to Meet the Writers. Thanks to my producer, Tamsin Howard. And you could download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.